Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 10 on the Lord's Supper. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is the Reverend Dr. Ryan Tanetti. He is pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan. Pastor Tanetti, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you so much, Pastor Smith. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's a great pleasure to have you on. First time on here, but uh, you and I went to seminary together, and uh, indeed, pleasure to uh, speak with you again and to go over the Lord's Supper. And as I said at the beginning of last week's show on baptism, this is really where the rubber hits the road, at least for me as a Lutheran Christian. Yep. The sacraments, I mean, these are just God's tremendous gifts to us, and so I'm really excited to talk about this and. To get us started, I'm going to go ahead and set the table by just reading the article from the Augsburg Confession there. Of course, a reminder on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 10 from the Augsburg Confession on the Lord's Supper. Our churches teach that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and distributed to those who eat the Lord's Supper. And they cite 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. They, that is the Lutheran churches, reject those who teach otherwise. And that is the entirety of Article 10 from the Augsburg Confession (laughs) on the Lord's Supper. Any questions? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Pretty short there. I mean, it seems like, you know, especially with my setup of this is where the rubber hits the road for us as Lutherans, the sacraments, you know, these great gifts of God. It seems like we would have a lot to say about the Lord's Supper. Yeah. But this is very brief. I mean, very short there. So what is it that Article 10 then is looking to confess about the Lord's Supper? Well, I think the reason that it's so short and what it seeks to confess is simply what the church has always held. This is a classic example of what we sometimes call the Catholicity of Lutheranism and being Catholic in that small c sense of universal, right? And so the Lutheran churches and the Augsburg Confession are not professing anything that was contrary to what was held among Christians from time eternal, going back to the time of the apostles. And that's what I think is so fascinating for Lutherans to come to this, because many times there will be this idea like, okay, this is one of those areas where we're really different from Roman Catholics. And there are differences, and and we can talk about that. But right here in Article 10, when they're just focusing on the nature of the Lord's Supper, the what of the Lord's Supper there isn't a huge difference. And in fact, Sean, I wanted to share with you the Roman confutation. So the way that this kind of worked, and I'm sure you guys have talked about this in uh, previous sessions, the Lutheran princes put forward this Augsburg Confession composed by Philip Melanchthon. And then 
the Roman church had an opportunity to respond. And of course, when it came to some of the articles, they had a lengthy, vigorous response and rebuttal to what the Lutherans teach, of course, especially about justification by grace through faith. But what's so interesting is to hear the Roman confutation, their response to this article 10 about the Lord's Supper. Here's what the Roman Catholics said in response to our Lutheran teaching. They said, the 10th article gives no offense in its words because they confess that in the Eucharist, after the consecration lawfully made, the body and blood of Christ are substantially and truly present. In other words, it was as though the Catholics read what the Lutherans had to say and Lutherans put forth their beliefs and everybody was like, okay, cool. We're one of the same on this. Let's move forward which was not my understanding for the longest time, and I think for a lot of Lutheran Christians. We thought, well, wait a second, don't we disagree about this vigorously? And the fact of the matter is when we're talking about what the Lord's Supper is, we're in large agreement about it, that what is it, simply put, as it says in Article 10 here, body and blood of Christ are truly present. For those of us who are familiar with, you know, those prepositions in, with, and under, right, that We receive Jesus' true body and blood in, with, and under the bread and wine. But when we're talking about the nature of the Lord's Supper itself, what we receive, there's large agreement, concord, if you will, between Lutherans and Catholics on that. And in fact, the Lutherans, their beef was not with the Roman Catholics at all on this. It was with another upstart group of Protestants this time who went by the name, or at least this was the the epithet that was given to them, of the sacramentarians. Now, sacramentarians were more of a, a Baptist or Anabaptist persuasion. And these were folks, they did not profess in the what we would call the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Instead, they held to more of a, a memorial view, which would be familiar in our modern days among many other Protestants and evangelicals and so forth. That was more the opponents to the Lutherans when it came to the Lord's Supper. It was not their fellow Roman Catholics who, in fact, shared that belief in the bodily presence of Christ in the Supper. Yeah, I often like to say, and maybe maybe this is even a little scandalous of me to say this at times, but I think that we're probably a lot closer to Rome in terms of the Lord's Supper than, say, you know, what I generally call broad American evangelicalism or those others that hold that view that you just talked about, right? And I think that it's important for us to remember that in this kind of setting here, right, that there is this agreement here. Now, there will certainly be other articles that will come up, especially Article 22, right, the both kinds in the sacrament. There were definitely some abuses, and of course, we all know about the transubstantiation and so forth. But I do think that it is important, especially with this first line here, that they're highlighting We believe in the true presence, and that's what the church has always confessed, and that's what you confess, and so we have concord in that, right? Would you agree with that assessment that we're maybe closer to them than basically everybody else, or is that a problem way to think about it? No, I I think that's an appropriate way to think about it, and where there's the disagreement is less on the what of that Lord's Supper than, as you alluded to, the how, which is to say transubstantiation is a like philosophical theory of trying to make sense of how the body and blood could be present with the bread and wine. And this is where Lutherans will get tagged with this made-up word, consubstantiation, which is nothing that we teach in our Lutheran confessions. This is just another way of trying to filter the Lutheran view through the same kind of philosophical framework, which 
we're just not really interested in. We're not interested in trying to, you know, pop the hood, so to speak, on the Lord's Supper and explain the mechanics of it. We're more like John the Baptist, just pointing to Jesus and be like, look, there's the Lamb of God. I mean, we literally sing this right in the Agnus Day, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we believe. Well, how is that? Give me some kind of explanation, Lutheran guy, how that's possible. I don't know. Because Jesus' word, he has that word, he has that promise. It's effectual. We don't feel a need to give some kind of mechanical explanation for it. And so that's where we more part ways with Rome, not in the what of the Lord's Supper, but in the how, where we're, we're just not as interested in that question. Yeah, I love that image of John the Baptist there. And in my practice as a pastor, I love to hold up the host and the chalice in front of everyone while we sing that. And, and I always encourage my people, look, here is Jesus for you. And I think we're always in danger of falling into that thinking, again, because we're just surrounded by it so much, by broad American evangelicalism all around us, this kind of idea that, well, maybe he's only there in some spiritual sense or something like that. But I think at times we even fall into that trap of failing to realize that is Jesus there, and we should direct our attention there. And so as we're talking about this then, I like how you've directed our focus on the what of the Lord's Supper, and especially as we see that the sacramentarians that you've talked about there and so forth, that the basic idea is that they've rejected the real presence of Christ. That's the main focus of this particular article. Go ahead and walk us through that there. How do they reject the true presence of Christ here, and thus why we reject them and their teaching? Right. So there's really three points of disagreement, and you might think of it like this. There's a disagreement about the mode of Christ's presence, in other words, what you receive. There's disagreement about the method of reception or how you receive it. And then thirdly, there's a a point of disagreement about the extent of reception, just to say who all receives him, receives Christ in the Lord's Supper. So there's these three points of disagreement, and what I'd like to do is just kind of walk us through each of these, starting with what we receive. So among the sacramentarians, again, this is kind of an offshoot of the Protestant Reformation, and these are folks who are more radical in the changes that they're trying to make. And so you hear their name floated around in other issues as well with when we talk about baptism and about the liturgy generally, there would tend to be just more of a reject of anything that kind of, as they would put it, smacks of Catholicism, right? So for the sacramentarians, Christ is only present spiritually. He's only present spiritually, which on the one hand, that sounds good. Like, well, wait a second. We believe that Christ is present spiritually, don't we? We don't want to reject that. But there can be a, a little bit of mischief in that term. They would say that, well, wait a second. Jesus says in John 6 that the spirit is what gives life. The flesh is of no avail. Okay. And so in terms of what you receive here, you're receiving a spiritual meal, but Christ is not bodily present. That's the focus there. And I think that we can affirm that notion that Christ is spiritually present. I mean, we very much want to emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the gift of the sacrament, but it simply doesn't go far enough, right? We just don't want to stop at this notion that, oh, Jesus is spiritually present and that's it. We would say he's spiritually present, but he's also present bodily, that he is present there physically for us. And that's a way of putting it that maybe sounds too stark or too offensive or, again, too Roman Catholic. But this is right here in our Lutheran confessions. It's not spelled out so much in Article 10 of the 
Augsburg Confession itself, but in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, as well as in the Formula of Concord, it puts it in precisely this way, that Jesus is present bodily as well as spiritually. And you mentioned how it has that note, that reference to 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Just to read that, it kind of gets to this point. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Of course, these are rhetorical questions, right? And even in the Greek construction of those questions, it's formulated in such a way that it assumes a positive answer. In other words, Paul's asking, the bread that we break, it's a participation in the body of Christ, isn't it? He assumes that, yeah, when we receive the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, that we really are receiving, participating in, communing with Jesus' true body and blood, not merely spiritually, but also physically. And this is going to be a point of departure from those sacramentarians. This was something that they disagreed with. But frankly, when you read what the scriptures say, what Jesus himself says, especially in that passage from John 6, it's unmistakable. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And it's been a disagreement through the ages. It was talking about the Lord's Supper there, but it's hard to read that. I think we're hard-pressed to read that and not hear resonances of biblical teaching about the Eucharist and what we receive in this gift. Yeah, it's come up on this show before that Martin Luther rejected John 6 as being a reference to the Lord's Supper. Right. And I think you highlighted already really well for us why he did so. I think he had in view his you know, opponent in that particular instance was the sacramentarians who were making this all a spiritual sense and so forth. And so I think, you know, kind of the way that I come down on this is he was basically saying, look, we don't even need to talk about John 6 as being about the Lord's Supper, <laughs> right, because right. look at all the other evidence that we have here. Yeah. And he takes them, of course, to First uh, Corinthians. I mean, First Corinthians 10 and 11 just makes it so abundantly clear, it does. as you highlighted there. Now, as you talk about this, too, and again, not necessarily the particular focus of this article right here, but as it comes up here, I think we should talk about it some. You talk about that bodily presence, and there's that idea there, especially for sacramentarians, those who hold that kind of idea of the spiritual presence at best. Uh, not even all of them would even go that far, and we can talk a little more about that in a second. But their response when they say, you know, well, that smacks of Roman Catholicism and talk about the bodily presence, they'll argue, well, you know, you can't put this wafer, this bread, underneath a microscope and see Jesus cells, right? You know, so how can this be? And that is what the Roman Catholics would say in terms of transubstantiation, right? Right. And so we kind of have this, you know, middle road that we're walking here, this tension where we do affirm the bodily presence, but we're not saying you can see Jesus cells in the bread and wine, right? Yeah, no, it's any more than you could, you know, take Jesus's DNA and find God cells in it. I mean, this is a confession of faith, to be sure. And so we're not being just crude about it. But I mean, I think that analogy to the two natures of our Savior is an apt one because he is fully God, fully man. But at the same time, the people who saw him and lived among even his own family at times thought he was out of his mind. This is, who is this guy? So when we confess Jesus's bodily presence in the Lord's Supper, no, it's not something you can just put under a microscope. You can scientifically, rationally make sense of this. It is very much a confession of faith 
that he is there physically as well as spiritually present in the gift. Which brings in that again, that aspect that you talked about. Look, we're not denying that he's spiritually present there. Right. But we're also saying that he is bodily present. Yes. And so I think that that's a really important, you know, once again, as we hold these tensions, uh, the Christian life is one lived in tension. We're always holding tensions. We just simply confess what Jesus has given us, that we do hold both the spiritual and the physical together. We don't pull those apart. But there are some who do, and clearly the sacramentarians are falling in that category. Yeah, it's a natural temptation to want to fall off on one side or the other, and this is one of the beauties of our Lutheran confession. It's like, let's live in that tension, in that paradoxical tension, that it's a both-and. It's not an either-or, and we're not muddling or mixing. We're trying to uphold both sides of it. And um, if I may, Sean, I think that there's a threat also that lurks behind this when we lose this notion of the bodily presence of Christ in it. And there's different ways that you could put it, whether you're talking about in terms of ancient heresies, you might have heard the term of Gnosticism. This was one heresy that afflicted the early church, or just more generally speaking, a kind of dualism that separates the physical from the spiritual, that separates God's working in the midst of the material stuff of life. You talk about it, rubber hitting the road, right? This down-to-earth reality of, of faith versus things that have to do with the soul, the immaterial things. And we really don't want to fall into that trap because the reality is that spirit and body are integrated, that God has created us in such a way that they go hand in hand. And a, a sacramental view of reality, not just when it comes to the Lord's Supper, but just to life in general, the life of faith sees that matter matters, right? That God is always present in, with, and under the regular stuff of life. And so the same thread, I think, uh, you you can run it through, for instance, our view of vocation, our Lutheran view of vocation, of our daily callings, whether it be what you do to make your livelihood or whether it be, you know, what you're doing in the home as a parent or as a child, et cetera, that in these vocations, it's God at work, as Gene V so aptly put it. It's God at work because there isn't this kind of dualistic separating of sacred and secular, physical and spiritual. All of it is bound up together. It's a more integrated worldview of recognizing God at work in all of it. And I think if we were to fall into that kind of sacramentarian kind of attitude of like, no, God can't really physically be working in this stuff. That just doesn't make sense. I think we really put ourselves in that temptation of lapsing into a kind of dualism or even agnosticism. Yeah, we actually had a show entirely dedicated to looking at Gnosticism as that kind of permeates a lot of things that come up in the Lutheran confessions. We did that not all that long ago, maybe only a couple months ago. Well, it was, yeah, right right before Christmas time, actually, we did a show on that and we talked about that. And, you know, Manichaeanism comes up in the Lutheran confessions and falls under that Gnostic heresy. And and we see also the other ideas that come up too. you know, Plato's idea, you know, Plato had a lot of great things, but, you know, kind of his separation of the visible and invisible, that's kind of permeating this thinking here as well of the sacramentarians. Um, you know, the famous one that had this dualism idea is Rene Descartes, right? You know, who separated the body and the soul. Yeah. And, you know, that's a direct heresy that stands against scripture. Right. I mean, God created us body and soul together, and the pulling apart of those in death 
is not meant to be. And as a matter of fact, we're looking to the resurrection of the body and the reuniting with the soul, right? And so these things all tend to come together here in this pinnacle of our faith in the Lord's Supper. And I think that's one of the reasons that, at least for me, I think it's so important that we highlight this and really understand and make our confession as we do as Lutherans about this, because it impacts so many other things that we see in our Christian faith that, no, we're not pulling this apart. We take what God has given us, and he has created it and given it to us this way, right? Yeah, there's a wonderful phrase that we use in our dogmatics and the way that we talk about theology is the corpus doctrine, that it's the body of doctrine. And I think it's a felicitous metaphor to use when we're talking about our teaching because what it expresses, just like when we talk about how the church is the body of Christ, if one member is is suffering, then they all suffer together. Similarly, when it comes to our Christian doctrine and our beliefs, they're not just standalone sorts of things. It's not just that they're isolated and atomized from one another. And yeah, we've got this belief about the Lord's Supper, but, you know, that has no impact or it's not at all connected to our belief about, for instance, the two natures of Jesus. Rather, all of these things are intimately connected to one another. We start to see these through runs with all of them, as I said, with when it comes to vocation, when it comes to baptism, baptism similarly, and they're, you know, they're next to each other here in the Augsburg Confession, because baptism too, we see how God works through material means, our whole sacramental theology, but also when we talk about justification and our view of the Lord's Supper, because the fact is that God comes down to us, gives himself to us freely so that when we receive the sacrament, this is the body of Christ for you. Like, it's hard to get a pure picture of what it means to be saved by grace through faith than simply empty hands prepared to receive the gift of Christ's body put into our hands, right? And so there's this connection, this body of doctrine where it all comes together. And so I think we really do ourselves a disservice if we try to break these things apart. But on the flip side, when we do start to see these patterns, these themes that run through all of our doctrines, we can see how one connects to another, connects to another. And in many ways, the Lord's Supper is kind of epitomizes so much of that body of doctrine, perhaps appropriately so, since we're talking about the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. Yeah, as you mentioned that there, I think something that highlights this really well, again, of the Augsburg Confession, Article 10 here specifically, but I think does highlight this and connect in very importantly here, is, you know, we have in 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul says this, uh, this is 11 verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And he goes on to talk more about that body and the guilt that we have in that denial. And it has come up in discussion before, even on this show, but again, I think makes this point. Is he talking about his bodily presence in the Lord's Supper there? Or is he talking about, as St. Paul so commonly talks about other places, the body of Christ, which is his church? Right. And at least where I come down on, and feel free to disagree and defend yourself, uh, but... (laughs) You know, when that question is asked, they say, well, which is it? Is it the bodily presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper or the body of Christ that is the church? And I say, yep, both. And I think that just highlights this point really well, right? 100%. I would agree wholeheartedly. And I mean, just in the context of 1 Corinthians, right? I kind of think that Paul, as he is inspired and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he has this discussion of the Lord's Supper and he's talking about the body. 
and the challenges that were being faced among the church. And it's almost as though he just kind of picks up that thread because it's in the next chapter, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, that he really develops that teaching of the church as the body of Christ. And I think to him, it just goes hand in hand. He just sees it so, so clearly. And I think that there's a, a sense in which when we talk about the Lord's Supper as receiving the very body and blood, this is what really constitutes us as the church in many ways. It's what makes us the body of Christ. You know, there's that old saying, you are what you eat, right? And so I don't want to sound too crass with this, but as we eat, as we receive the body of Christ in our mouths, then we become the body of Christ as the church. That's what forms and shapes us and unites us. And, you know, I mean, there's all these different ceremonies and traditions, and these vary from congregation to congregation. But just to think about how, for many of our churches, when we gather together to receive the Lord's Supper on a Sunday, we'll do it by gathering together at a communion rail side by side, not just individually, not just one-on-one, although, you know, there's churches that will do that too. And I, I don't mean to say that you can't do that or it's any less the Lord's Supper, but there's something really powerful about receiving the Lord's Supper alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. And to, in that way, recognizing that while this communion is with the Lord, it's also, in a sense, a horizontal relationship as well. That is, it's this communion with one another as the body of Christ, the church. And both of those things go hand in hand. Again, that body of doctrine. And I think there's something really powerful to recognize that. So, yeah, I agree with you, Pastor Smith. It's a both and there when we talk about discerning the body. We're discerning the body of Christ. We're seeing him present with one another, as well as seeing him present in these gifts that he has given to us. Yeah, I think it really is important to highlight this point. And when talking about what you are receiving, which is definitely the focus of this first line here, is that we are receiving the true presence of Christ here. I like what you said there. And I think that that is really important for us that we understand we become Christ's body through receiving his body. And that is just such a beautiful image. And even as you talk about there too, we also don't just, especially in Lutheran churches, view what we do at the rail, but that the rail kind of invisibly goes around and includes all of the saints behind the altar as well. Yeah. Saints in heaven, the church at all times and places. It's one holy communion it makes as the hymn says. Yes. And just all of this beautiful imagery that unites us together and brings us together. But it all begins with a proper definition of what we are receiving. And this really does distinguish us. And, uh, you know, we're kind of coming out of the COVID stuff. I hope, I hope it's going away and everything. But this is one of the things that at least I, as a pastor in my pastoral ministry, kept trying to write to all of our government leaders and those leading nursing homes and those sorts of things and everything and trying to explain to them, look, You need to let us into the nursing homes to visit our people. You need to let us into the hospitals to visit our people who are sick, some of them dying and so forth, because this isn't just some spiritual out there thing that we do. We believe in a real presence that actually unites us to Christ in a very real, tangible way, and it begins right here in the Lord's Supper with Christ uniting himself to us in a very, very personal way. Yeah, and... Uh, Sean, you probably don't want to get me wound up on this, uh, especially as I know we're going to go to a break here in a minute. But just this is one of the reasons why I think Lutherans, as well as other sacramental Christians, have felt a little bit of discomfort. I mean, some Christians pivoted really easily and naturally 
to just, uh, you know, all the online kind of ministry stuff. Whereas for us, I think as Lutherans and, and our churches, we've done our best, right? <laughs> but it's not native to who we are. And in, in some ways, I think it was just from the sacramental kind of viewpoint, we would never feel too comfortable with it. And we shouldn't feel too comfortable with it because we worship an embodied savior who continues to minister and give himself to us an embodied means among an embodied community. And so it's essential to who we are as the people of God. Absolutely. And I do want to get you wound up. Part of my job as host is to just poke you in the eye and get you wound up. (laughs) But you're right, we do have to take a break here. So hopefully that will carry over to the other segment of our show here. But having stopped there and talking about the what you receive of the Lord's Supper, we're going to pick up on the other side, those other two things that are in view here of how you receive him and who receives him. And we'll continue that with our guest here, the Reverend Dr. Ryan Tonetti, as we look at the Augsburg Confession, Article 10 on the Lord's Supper. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. Every Sunday, you are invited to dig into the scriptures with God's people at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. This in-depth Bible class goes verse by verse through the scriptures, pointing out the meaning of the text and its application for Christians today. Recordings of prior classes are available on kfuo.org in the St. Paul's Bible class section. Grow in your knowledge and understanding of scripture every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. on KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime, anywhere. Back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. Ryan Tanetti. He is pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan, and we are looking at the Augsburg Confession, Article 10 on the Lord's Supper here. And Pastor Tanetti, you were setting up for us in the first segment of today's show. You brought our focus on this very brief article here that especially what's in view here is really confessing with the Church Catholic, as you said, what the Church really does confess. Of course, we have some differences. We talked about a few of those with the Roman Catholic Church, but especially in the main focus of this, we do agree that Christ is truly present in his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. We have that agreement with the Roman Catholic Church. And you were setting up for us that there's kind of three things that we want to keep in mind here, the what you receive, how you receive them, and who receives them. And we talked right before break at length, but a lot of really great discussion there on what you receive, and once again, focused in on the true presence of Christ in the body. And so I guess it does follow naturally then this idea of, okay, so if Christ is bodily present, then uh, how do you receive him? How does that happen? Right. So, well, let's first think of it and contrast it with that sacramentarian view and how they believe that you receive or what you receive, how you receive it in the Lord's Supper. So if what you receive is Christ's spiritual presence, they would say that means by which you receive Christ's spiritual presence and whatever blessings might come along with that in the Lord's Supper, you receive it simply by faith. And that's going to give us pause for a second, because as Lutherans, we just hear by faith, and we're like, we're on board, 100%, by faith, sola fide, all that. And once again, it's true, but we'll say again that it's not quite true enough. We'll get more into that in a second. But just to kind of to set out the sacramentarian perspective. So they're saying, okay, look, here's the deal. It says in Acts chapter 3, uh, this is Acts chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. This is a commonly referenced passage. Um, I think it's Peter's preaching here. It says, 
then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah, for, and here's the key phrase, he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. They would point to this verse, and in particular that phrase, that he must remain in heaven. And so they'd say, well, look, you Lutherans, it says right here clearly in the scripture, Jesus must remain in heaven. And so how are we going to access him? We can't access him here in any other way by faith. But by faith, spiritually speaking, if you can kind of, you know, imagine your soul or your spirit sort of flying up to heaven as you approach the Lord's Supper, and that's how you are going to receive him. By faith, you are transported to God's heavenly abode, and there you receive him spiritually. And, you know, put all that way, it sounds maybe a little bit weird, but we could probably get on board with that. Like, okay, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. He's kind of locked up there in heaven, and the only way that we've got a key to unlock his spiritual presence is by faith. All good so far as it goes. But once again, as Lutherans, we would say it doesn't go far enough. That we don't merely receive him by faith, but incredibly, the Lutheran confessions go further to say we also receive him by mouth. Now, this is, I think, the easiest way, and Pastor Smith, perhaps you found the same thing to be true, to really distinguish, you know, Lutherans from other Protestant Christians. To ask them this question, and we could frame it this way. You're having the Lord's Supper. It's a a Sunday, and you've got folks who are coming there, and maybe you've got some visitors. Say it's around the holidays. We're coming up on Easter, right? And so maybe uh, Tom, who's Buddhist, He's coming from out of town and he's visiting his parents. And, you know, he just comes up when it comes time for the Lord's Supper and pastor didn't have a chance to talk with him before the service. And he just sneaks right in and he's next to his family and he thinks, okay, everybody's receiving the Lord's Supper. This is what I'm supposed to do. Even though I'm a Buddhist, I don't believe any of this Christian, you know, hokey stuff. And, you know, the pastor taking it in good faith with his hands open wide, looks pious enough gives him the host. Then the question is, well, what does Tom the Buddhist, who doesn't believe in this Christian doctrine, what does he actually receive? Does he receive Jesus's true body, or does he merely receive the host, since he doesn't believe? Well, the sacramentarians would say, well, that's easy. I mean, Tom, he doesn't believe, so of course, all he receives is the host. He doesn't receive Jesus's body. He doesn't believe, because from their perspective, essentially, your faith creates the presence of Christ in the sacrament. And so if you don't have that faith, then, you know, you don't receive him, but no harm, no foul. Tom the Buddhist goes on his way, and it's a conversation that he needs to have later with the pastor and with his parents, right? Uh, But this is where the Lutherans say, no, 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 no. Whether or not you believe Jesus is there, he is objectively present so that you receive him not merely by faith, but also by mouth, that we receive his very body and blood in our mouths for the forgiveness of sins. And even to go back to that Acts chapter 3 passage, which would get cited, a better translation, and as it is in the ESV, says that Jesus, not who must remain in heaven, but rather whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things. It's a subtle difference to be sure, but what it's expressing is not that Jesus is in some wise locked up in heaven and can't come down for our celebration of the Lord's Supper. And I think that would create other problems anyway if we believed that Jesus was like, you know, under house arrest or something like that (laughs) in the heavenly home. 
but that heaven receives him until looking ahead to his second coming and the return of our Lord Jesus. And yet we believe that as he is installed at the right hand of the Father, that that right hand of the Father, and it says in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, means that he fills all things, that he has a ubiquitous presence so that he is able to locate himself here in the Lord's Supper, in with and under the bread and wine, so that when we receive this gift, we don't just receive it by faith, which is important, and we do receive it by faith, but that we also receive it orally by mouth. Yeah, there's actually something going on. Faith does things, right? And that's, you know, especially when we just came out of Article 9 on baptism, we see that in view here then too, right? You know, that baptism actually does something because the Word of God says it does. Yes. And that's, it affects that faith. The same thing here, right? That the faith receives this, but it actually does something there. And just as you were talking there too, I think this is also then makes the point, I realize you were giving us an example here, and but when we talk about closed communion and so forth, this is why the practice of it and why I myself as a pastor would have a conversation with Tom, even right there at the rail, because this is Christ's body there. And especially in view 1 Corinthians 11, that this could be received to his judgment if he's not discerning the body and blood of Christ and not receiving it in faith. And so I think that makes the point of why we would actually want to have that conversation with Tom, the the Buddhist, or whoever, right? Because I, as a Lutheran, believe that this is Christ's body there, and it also shares that confession of the faith that's gathered around that altar then as well. But there in that mind, too, it sets up this idea that, you know, it can't just be, as is so commonly floated out there, just me and Jesus and what I believe is going on. But faith is actually something concrete and real there. Yes, exactly. And I think that there is, as we said with that first question of what the sacrament is, and there was a threat of dualism, there's also a threat here that if we detach this notion of how we receive Jesus, not just by faith, but in our very mouths, he comes to us. If we reject that, there's really a threat of a subjectivism. And by a subjectivism, I mean where it does just focus, as you say, on the me and Jesus, and it's very much kind of what's in my heart, you know, what do I believe at any given moment? And it can be way too interior. Of course, the interior life matters, and the the life of faith does affect our interior. I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But subjectivism is where that becomes the be-all, end-all. And we lose that beautiful objectivity of our faith, that extra notes, that outside of us character of our faith, which is such a gift because, I mean, Pastor Smith, you could attest, I know I could as well, not just as a pastor, but simply as a Christian, there are frankly some Sundays, some Lord's Days, where you're just not feeling it, right? (laughs) Where you're like, gosh, if somebody took my faith temperature right now, it'd be pretty doggone cold. But on those days especially, I thank God that what matters is not just how do I feel and how strong my interior life is, but that he is externally, objectively present here for me. So that when I come to the altar, when I come to the communion rail and there it's like, oh, well, I don't know, pastor, if I've been such a good Christian this week and my faith feels like it's kind of weak about say, enough with all that talk, right? Here's Jesus for you, all right? 
Here, it doesn't matter how you feel. Here's Jesus's body and blood going into your mouth, into your heart, into your soul for the forgiveness of sins, to renew you for faith and life. That is so refreshing, so liberating just to have that external aspect to it. So this again is that kind of paradoxical both and aspect to our faith. Yeah, we want to hold on to the subjective interior side to it, but we also, and at the same time, need to uphold that objective external aspect that here God is present for me. What a beautiful thing for us to confess. Yeah, we talk a lot on this show about the order is important of things. And of course, we mean that in terms of both when we talk about the progression of the articles of our doctrine and those sorts of things and how one flows forth and connects to the others and so forth. But also, you know, not too long ago, just a couple articles ago, we had the discussion on good works, right? And good works follow faith. And I would say, in terms of what you were just saying, in terms of the feelings and so forth, is that the order is important there as well, right? You know, a lot of times I can't help but maybe come in not really feeling it, as you said, to the Lord's Supper or, you know, whatever may be going on. But that effective word of Christ was present there. And I mean to tell you what, a lot of times that just changes your perspective coming out of that, knowing that it's not dependent on me and my being in tune and completely focused and everything else. Yeah, It really leads to some beautiful moments that really enrich the feeling. Absolutely. And, you know, just again, the beautiful imagery for me of the whole church, the saints in heaven gathered with the saints on earth that, you know, as Arthur just says in his book, you know, heaven and earth come together Mm. in that beautiful moment and everything. I mean, how can I not get emotional at something like that, right? That there I am gathered together with my grandparents who I love and miss and so many other dear saints that we have shared this earthly existence with and miss and those in scripture and everybody, they're all gathered together there in this Holy Communion. I mean, how can that not result in a beautiful, beautiful feeling for us? But yet it follows that. It follows the objective thing that is going on that Christ is delivering by the power of his word there. Exactly. I mean, like you say, how could you not feel those emotions? It's true. But our point is, whether or not you do, Christ is still present there for you. And I mean, you're speaking in such beautiful and poetic terms. Let me bring it to my household where I've got some little kids and I know you do too, Sean. And one of our favorite books is Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, right? You know that one? Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. Well, in any event, uh, Mo Willems, check it out. Very good book. But I think what we're saying here is don't let the feelings drive the bus, right? The feelings aren't what's driving it or to change it from a bus to a train metaphor, right? The feelings are the caboose, but that objective reality of Christ's word and his gifts, that's the engine. That's what's really moving things along. Feelings follow from the gifts. Feelings don't generate the gifts. Your feelings aren't what make Jesus present there for you. Rather, your feelings follow from the objective fact that Christ is present there for you. Absolutely. Very well said. All right, let's uh, move on to that third one then, if you're ready. Yeah. And I think you almost kind of hinted at it already, Yeah. Uh, especially in your example with Tom there, the Buddhist. Um, that's great. I, I'm just going to, I'm going to bring Tom the Buddhist in from time <laughs> to time on this show. But uh, so then the third point that you wanted to make on this is then who receives? Yeah. You know, knowing what you receive, Christ's true presence, true bodily blood presence there, and how you receive him. 
then this third one here, then who receives him? Yeah, exactly. So from the sacramentarian perspective, just to recap here and kind of follow the logic here, Christ is only present spiritually. He's not present bodily. The Lord's Supper is a kind of memorial meal. And how do you access it? How do you receive it? Well, you receive it by faith. Of course, you don't receive it in your mouth. We do that, but that's really just a way to kind of jog our memories to, you know, to bring to recollection or perhaps to try and drum up some feelings because isn't this a beautiful thing that we're going through here? But then following from that, well, look, this is only received by faith. And so, I mean, it follows from that. Christ is only received by believers. The person who doesn't believe, but who for whatever reason, you know, receives the gifts, they're not actually receiving Jesus there. They're merely getting bread and wine because it's believers and the believers alone who are able to have access to that spiritual presence of Christ by faith. Again, it all kind of follows and hangs together. Where our Lutheran confession then differs is because of this objectivity, the reality of Jesus present there. And again, this is both for good and ill, for better or for worse. Everybody is receiving Jesus. Whether or not you believe that he is actually there, he is objectively present for you. And you already mentioned that reading from 1 Corinthians 11, which I think is so pivotal and so essential in understanding this. But let me also offer kind of an Old Testament analogy. And maybe remember the story in 1 Samuel when the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, right? Okay, so let's think of this kind of analogously. The Ark of the Covenant, Old Testament believers would have said that this is the real presence of God in our midst they wouldn't be so reductionistic to say that God is confined to the Ark of the Covenant, but that in his wisdom, he has located himself to the Ark of the Covenant so that he is present, so to speak, in, with, and under the Ark of the Covenant there on the mercy seat. He's located himself for the atonement, the forgiveness of sins. So what's going to happen when the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant? Is that going to go well for them? I mean, you know, they don't believe in the true God of Israel. So is this for them just some neutral box, you know, They've stole a bit of furniture. It's like they, if they came over to your house, Sean, and stole a chair out from your house. Like, oh, it's a bummer, but it's not going to you know, destroy their home. Well, we see in First Samuel 5, in fact, when they take the Ark of the Covenant, things start going haywire for them because the true God of Israel is present there. So they start getting boils, you know, Dagon is falling over. Like, life is going terrible until finally they're like, let's just take this thing. We don't want it because God was actually there. It was not a question of whether he was present, but just whether it was going to be for their good or for their ill. Because they did not believe in the true God of Israel for the Philistines, it went very badly. And according to New Testament teaching, there's a similar analogy to be made here, where Jesus is truly present in the gifts. It's just a question of, is he going to be present for your blessing? Or, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 11, is it going to be present for your discipline? Is it going to be something that doesn't avail for your benefit? You're not going to be able to receive the gift as he intended it, which was to be a blessing for you. Yeah, I absolutely love that story, especially where Dagon keeps falling over and they're you know, kind of confused <laughs> by this. And they say, oh, maybe he's a fellow and set him up. And, but, uh, but I do think makes a point. And also just Jesus's own word, you know, we talk about this theologically as well, that he tabernacles among us. You know, he is the tabernacle of the Old Testament. That was always the image in view was that this is ultimately in Jesus. And so 
God has always been present in a very physical, real, tangible way amongst his people. And Jesus says, this is how I'm doing it. And so it's kind of presumptuous, I think, that there are Christians that would say, well, no, actually, we think it's this way. It's like, why are you arguing with Jesus? You know, why are you (laughs) arguing with the evidence of the Old Testament scriptures that set all of this up? That makes us realize that Christ has always been present in a very real, tangible way amidst his people. Yeah, I mean, and I think to go back one step further, the reason why, you know, just to put the best construction on it for our fellow believers who don't hold to the same confession, I think that many times there's this further presupposition, and it's a presupposition that that's common among modern people, especially those coming out of, you know, enlightenment kind of mindset, which, I mean, we have to be honest, this is the air that all of us breathe, right? This is the water that all of us are swimming in. But the supposition is that, well, the physical couldn't contain the spiritual. Like, that just doesn't make sense. And there's biblical basis that you could point to. You think of Solomon as he, you know, as they're commemorating the building, the construction of the temple, and they're talking about how, look, even the highest heavens couldn't hold God. God is not just part of creation. We can't just bottle him up. Part of Solomon's point in that prayer is that, and yet, in grace, God has located himself in the temple. So Solomon is not like a proto-sacramentarian. There's a phrase for you. He's not saying, oh, so as we know, you know, this is just any other house. But he's saying, God, even though the highest heavens can't contain God, and yet in the mystery and wonder of God, he has chosen to locate himself in this place for us. And we would say similarly, look, I know, guys, this doesn't make sense that the finite would be capable of the infinite, that the infinite God would locate himself in finite means. But as you say, this is the word that he has given to us. And we're not trying to go beyond or be more spiritual than Jesus on this one, guys. We're trying to simply take him at his word, his powerful, wonderful word. And there's great blessings that come to us in doing so. And so if if I could, Sean, just to go one step further, I know our time is starting to wind down. Just as with those other two questions, there's a threat that kind of follows behind them. I think finally, there's a a threat that can be behind us here if we don't take Christ at his word and really believe in this physical presence of the Lord's Supper, that when we celebrate his gifts, that he's actually here for us. And that threat, that temptation is irreverence. You think, well, what's the big deal with irreverence? But irreverence and the word reverent just comes from a, a root meaning to fear. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're taught over and over again in the scriptures. And of course, we don't merely fear God, but first commandment, you know, that we shall have no other gods. What does this mean? That we fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We want to have a proper sense of the fear of the Lord, a reverence toward him. And part of this comes out in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Do we have a proper reverence toward the fact that he is here? If you don't believe that Jesus is really there, if you think it's just kind of a show or a little symbolic thing that we're doing or just something that we're trying to do to try and jog our memories about what he has done for us, then you can fall into all manner of of irreverence where even as one person asked me, uh, maybe partially tongue-in-cheek, but they said, you know, Pastor, why can't we just have beer and pizza instead of, you know, bread and wine for the Lord's Supper? Does it really make a difference? You start to go down into all sorts of these kind of irreverent rabbit holes if we lose that sense of the real external, solid, bodily presence of Christ. But when we recognize that Jesus is truly there, albeit in a way that we can never fully wrap our minds around, then all of our 
our ceremonies and our ritual, these things that we do, which are not commanded in scripture, but which are nevertheless beneficial for our faith, they follow naturally, right? That we want to kneel before him, that we want to sing his praises, that we want to couch this diamond of the Lord's Supper into a fitting setting of the liturgy because we believe that he is truly there. That reverence then follows naturally from a, a view that he is really there. Whereas I think an irreverence is a natural temptation when you don't confess that true bodily presence of Christ in with and under the bread and wine. Wholeheartedly agree there. And I always like to make the point, I do this in my pastoral ministry, that when it comes to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, I'll do things like the full genuflecting and so forth that a lot of people really look at that and say, wow, that really smacks of Roman Catholicism there and so forth. But I'm always very clear with my people why I do it. And it's because, as you said earlier, you know, we just kind of live and breathe this air around us that just has a different view that's so easy to fall into and slip into that we don't really recognize and believe the true presence there and that Christ has actually located himself there according to his word. And at least I know I even kind of grew up with that understanding. I grew up in the Lutheran church and I was faithfully taught and everything like that, but it just surrounds us so much that you begin to slip into that. And so I very intentionally do those sorts of things because I want to remind my folks that, hey, this is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that the heavens cannot contain, but yet how wonderful is it that he has located himself here with me, poor miserable sinner, bag of worms that I am, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I do things very intentionally to help us all understand what's really going on. Now, am I saying that you're not really doing it right if you don't do the genuflecting or I'm trying to shame other pastors that don't do it? No, I'm not doing any of that, right? I'm just very intentional in my own practice because I want to make sure that we hold this confession that we do hold as Lutherans. And so it does form into our ceremonies and the way that we conduct ourselves. Even, I'm sure you do this as well, you know, when we have weddings in our sanctuaries and so forth, a lot of times you get folks who, you know, maybe have never stepped foot in a church at all, who are there as bridesmaids or groomsmen and things like that, and even others from other traditions and so forth. And they'll come up and they'll be real casual around the altar and things like that. And I always just use it as an opportunity to say, this is what we believe as Lutherans. We believe that Christ actually comes in a very real way here, and we we like to have reverence. And so, you know, as you're gathered together in this sanctuary with us for this wedding, we're glad to have you. Please bow and reverence the altar. We even, yeah. we even use that term, right? Yeah. So there's lots of things that we can point to that reflect what we believe, and I think that that's an important connection here. I love how you brought in that threat of irreverence, which is, I would say, especially as Americans, just in mm -hmm. general, irreverence is our daily bread, <laughs> in a sense. I mean, we just, we don't have reverence towards much of anything. No, it's true. Well, I mean, we'll have reverence towards, sometimes toward the wrong things. And there's this marvelous quote from uh, a guy named Leela Dreiken, who in fact uh, himself, he's not a Lutheran, I think he's maybe a, a Presbyterian author, but he had a quote to this effect when he was talking about just how th there's been this kind of cultural shift where he says, Earlier in this century, someone claimed that we work at our play and play at our work. Today, the confusion has deepened. We worship our work, work at our play, and play in our worship. <laughs> and I think that really encapsulates so much of the challenges that we have. And so, as you said, the ceremonies that we have and the, the different rituals, these things that surround the celebration of the Lord's Supper, they teach. You'll talk about this a lot more with Article 24 of the Augsburg Confession, but this is the function of these things is they, they teach 
They form the faith of the faithful. They're not things that we have to do. And fellow believers, even fellow Lutherans who practice otherwise, we don't need to cast aspersions on them by any means. It's just recognizing the things that we do, they follow naturally from our confession of faith, of who Jesus is and how he is present here for us. Absolutely. Uh, as we are wrapping up here, just a minute or so left in the show today, how do you want to wrap us up? How does this connect? You brought in, we're going to see some of these things come up in Article 24. We've referenced some of the other things that are coming up. We'll be talking about the Lord's Supper again here. Uh, how does this help us set up and understand what's coming in the Augsburg Confession here? Yeah, I think I mentioned the phrase already, but I think it's just so key how it emphasizes our down-to-earth God, the God who comes to us and meets us in these material means and hear it in uh, an epistle reading in the, in the three-year lectionary from Romans 10, where, where's the word? The word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart, this word that we proclaim. And so we're just going to see that theme repeated again and again, God coming down to earth to meet us. All right. And next week, we'll continue looking at the sacraments, if you will. Maybe there's a third sacrament. There's debate on this. We'll talk more about this next week. But next week, we'll continue on to Article 11 of the Augsburg Confession on confession. Thank you today, Pastor Ryan Tanetti, for joining us on Concord Matters and teaching us the Lutheran Confession of the Lord's Supper here from Article 10 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a pleasure having you join us today. Thank you. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, Keep confessing, church.